Hey there. Welcome to another installment of the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and in this episode, I'm going to share a conversation with Professor Adam Izdebski. Professor Izdebski is a historian of late antiquity and Byzantium, which is to say the Eastern Roman Empire. Although in the conversation you're about to hear, we're going to talk a lot about the Western Roman Empire. And that's all going to be in the service of, you might say, consilience. Uh, consilience is the unity of knowledge, basically the truth that various sciences and intellectual disciplines get at when they are investigating with different methodologies and different, um, different lexicons, different sets of words and concepts that they use to investigate anything, in this case, the past. And while Adam Izdebski is not the author of a book called The Fate of Rome, we talk so much about it in the first half of the conversation that you're about to hear that I might as well share with you a summary of that book. The full title is The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. It's written by Kyle Harper. And I've actually read this book. Uh, I wanted to get out my copy and look through it, but I have moved since I read it, and it is packed away someplace, and I cannot find it. So I'm going to read parts of the description of the book that you can find on goodreads.com. I imagine this text was composed by the publisher, and it's probably similar to a description that you'd find just about anywhere you look for the book, either on the publisher's website or Wikipedia or Amazon.com. In fact, Goodreads is owned by Amazon.com. Here is the monumental retelling of one of the most consequential chapters of human history, the fall of the Roman Empire. The Fate of Rome is the first book to examine the catastrophic role that climate change and infectious disease played in the collapse of Rome's power, a story of nature's triumph over human ambition. Interweaving a grand historical narrative with cutting-edge climate science and genetic discoveries, Kyle Harper traces how the fate of Rome was decided not just by emperors, soldiers, and barbarians, but also by the volcanic eruptions, solar cycles, climate instability, and devastating viruses and bacteria. He takes readers from Rome's pinnacle in the 2nd century, when the empire seemed an invincible superpower, to its unraveling by the 7th century, when Rome was politically fragmented and materially depleted. Harper describes how the Romans were resilient in the face of enormous environmental stress until the besieged empire could no longer withstand the combined challenges of the Little Ice Age and recurrent outbreaks of bubonic plague. A poignant reflection on humanity's intimate relationship with the environment, the fate of Rome provides a sweeping account of how one of history's greatest civilizations encountered, endured, yet ultimately succumbed to the cumulative burden of nature's violence. The example of Rome is a timely reminder that climate change and germ evolution have shaped the world we inhabit in ways that are surprising and profound. So the relevance of uh, this, this book... The Fate of Rome, which focuses on changes in climate and pandemic diseases, or at least communicable diseases, and what that lends to, what that contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire. This is interesting because the fall of the Roman Empire has been of enormous interest to scholars for a very long time. Uh, there is a famous book published in several volumes between 1788 and 1789 by Edward Gibbon, a very, very famous book. And in it, Gibbon looks for the cause of the fall of the Roman Empire, and ultimately, and of course this is a great simplification, but according to Gibbon, the Roman Empire succumbed to barbarian invasions, in large part due to the gradual loss of civic virtue among its citizens. And one of the contributions to that loss of civic virtue was the rise of Christianity. 
and the corresponding fall of the Roman pagan religion with its many gods. And one of the, uh, the institutions in Roman society, which was the most religious, was the Roman military. But there is a concept called monocausotaxophilia, which neither I nor my guest will mention in the coming conversation, but it's something that we're sort of walking around referencing, but not explicitly naming. And monocausotaxophilia is the human propensity to look for single causes for complex phenomenon, which have multiple contributing factors. So depending on what your interest is, you're going to look for different sorts of explanations. So if you are interested in ethnography, then you're probably going to think about the fall of the Roman Empire in terms of non-Roman people migrating into Rome. If you're a military history buff, well, then you're going to look at the, you know, the, the possible uh, overextension of the Roman legions trying to hold too much territory with too few people, or the necessity in the later Roman Empire to hire mercenaries, you know, like Germanic barbarian mercenaries, in order to make up for the lack of Roman citizens in the military, and how mercenaries might be good fighters, but because they're not citizens of your empire, they're not going to have the same sort of loyalty that a Roman citizen serving in the legions would. Or perhaps you're an economist, and you're going to consider the over-reliance that Rome had on slave labor, or you're going to look at the problems that they had maintaining sound money. And these are the sorts of explanations that you're going to gravitate to when you're thinking about the collapse of Rome. Now, I mention all this because Adam Izdebski is the leader of a multidisciplinary research group at the Max Planck Institute, and they are using various scientific disciplines to examine the environmental history of the late Holocene, which is the current environmental epoch in which we are in. Now, you may have heard that we're living in the Anthropocene, and that will be a discussion for the second half of the conversation. I will be back to tee up that second part of the conversation around the midpoint in this podcast. But for now, here's Professor Adam Izdebski talking about the value of getting a group of people with different scientific disciplines together to look into a single subject. You are listening to the Padbird Podcast, and I am joined by Adam Izbedsky. And I should have asked you about the pronunciation before we went live. Uh, did I get that right? Yes. Yes, you did. Izdebski. I mean, Polish last names are quite difficult, so it's a point for you. <laughs> Thank you. So I have a, a bio here that was prepared for me by our very helpful producers, and it describes you as an interdisciplinary scientist working at the crossroads of history and environmental science, and that you lead a research group at the Max Planck Institute. Uh, so that is very impressive to me. I have, I have known of the existence of the Max Planck Institute for decades, largely because of a TV series by James Burke called The Day the Universe Changed. It is a bit of a thrill to actually make a connection to that organization now. <laughs> Thanks. So... I had outlined three topics, and uh, you just reviewed them with me before we went live here. I'd like to start with the third topic, which is uh, multidisciplinary studies, and a book that I read a couple decades ago now that was it meant a lot to me, so much so that when I sold my library, I kept this book to take it with me traveling, was uh, Consilience by E.O. Wilson. Consilience is the unity of knowledge. It is basically the idea that different fields of study, while they have different vocabulary and different means of investigation and uh, different criteria for what counts as actual data, you know, or reliable data, they can all converge on a single truth. And it seems like 
you must be striving towards something like consilience uh, when you lead a multidisciplinary research team. That's true. Although it's quite interesting. On the one hand, the notion of consilience matters a lot to us. On the other hand, the book by E.O. Wilson has its let's call them problems and uh, reasons for which scholars in social science and the humanities have issues with it. Well, say more about that. What what issues do you take with uh, E.O. Wilson? The main problem is that he is a social biologist. So the question is, okay, you have consilience, you want the unity of knowledge, but how do you do it actually? Do you actually have a polyphony, plurality of voices? that do not necessarily have to converge, do not necessarily have to agree because the universe does not, you know, agree. The reality is kind of disconcerting. Yes, it's not, it can sometimes be even self-contradictory in a way. Whereas Willison proposes that we should arrive at one single unifying theory and probably not entirely in an explicit way, not entirely intentionally, he uses social biology and very rough application of this theory to the social and physical world in this book. So from the point of view of many scientific disciplines, both in the social sciences and also in some of the natural sciences, there is some degree of reductionism here. So he actually, by arriving at a unitary single theory, he gets rid of other theories on the way. And this is part of the problem. What we do is more like a dialogue that continues and that will probably never end. Are you familiar with the notion of uh, non-overlapping magisteria? I'm not, but it sounds like non-overlapping would be the way I, I would uh, think of consilience. So we really want to bring together the different sciences. In some way, one could say it needs to be democratic. So everyone should be given their voice. And it's not a democracy where you decide things by the majority that you assemble at the moment. It's more a consensual democracy, yes? So that you want to bring in everyone's voice into the final vision of things. So non-overlapping magisteria usually refers to the relationship between science and religion, uh, which is to say that both provide access to truths about the world, but they don't compete with each other. They don't contradict each other. They're just, they don't overlap. They're different. Uh, but it seems like when you're leading a multidisciplinary research team, you are looking to have overlapping observations and, and you know, realizations that you, you do want to come to some sort of yes. unified position. Yes, that's true. But it does not mean that in the end, one of us has the last word. It's more about, okay, you see some, one aspect of the problem. I see another aspect of the same phenomenon. And we bring it together. We do not reduce one to another. You know, We don't choose one over the other. So you are leading a, a multidisciplinary team investigating what? We investigate environmental history of the late Holocene. So we look at the last 3,000 years, the time when the modern civilization with all of its successes and problems emerged and developed. And we look at the interplay of the social and natural systems. So we look at pandemics, climate variability in the past, how it played out with economic development, with politics, how politics and economic development influence the cause of emergence and cause of pandemics and so on. These are these questions at the interface of the environment and the society during this period 
when complex societies emerged and developed and brought us to the point of what is called the beginning of the Anthropocene. And specifically, uh, what time period are you looking at? So we are looking at several different time periods. Late Holocene, just to make it clear, is the last 3,000 years, more or less. Mm-hmm. Most of the time we look at the period from the end of antiquity until the beginning of modernity, so something like 300 to 1800 CE. But we also look at earlier times in, of Greek antiquity. It depends on the availability of the data and the questions that we want to ask. So you can look at the emergence of economic complexity and market integration in ancient Greece. You can also look at that in the 16th century, yes, after the discovery of the Americas. And if you want to arrive at some more general observations, you need to look at both. So we really work cross periods. I would say that what is more defining for us is the space we work with. And we focus mostly on Western Eurasia, the Eastern and Central Mediterranean in particular, and Central Europe in particular. And your own specialty is in the Byzantium Empire, is that right? Yes, that's true. I mean, it's both ancient history. I've been educated as an ancient historian, and then I worked for several years, and I still do, on the Byzantine Empire. Otherwise known as the Eastern Roman Empire. Yes. (laughs) The one that didn't fall, (laughs) at least not at the same time that we talk about the fall of Rome. Yes, yes. It fell some thousand years later. Yes. So what different academic specialties are represented in your research team? First of all, geology and history. Uh, These are the main, or geology slash biology. So different kinds of environmental science that use biological and geological methods to study past environments. This is, I would say, one part of the equation, and the other part is historians. So people who work on texts that were produced by past societies. But there are several other disciplines that we collaborate with. Well, you've made mention of markets and economics. So do you have economic specialists in your team? We have a historian who works with economic sources. He works on taxation registers from the 16th and 17th century in the Ottoman, so Turkish Empire, in the Mediterranean. And I worked for several years with economists. But we don't have, at the moment, an economist directly involved in our team. And what sorts of uh, realizations or discoveries are you making that overturn previously held beliefs about that period and about that civilization? Let me give you two examples. One is about markets and economics. So we used paleoecological data, information about changes in the landscape and land use in the past, to prove that market integration on, let's say, Mediterranean, almost Mediterranean scale, occurred kind of globalization, early globalization, more local, but still this kind of process, occurred already in archaic Greece. So like 2,600 years before now, so relatively early. This would be one thing. And what comes out of that is the conclusion that integration of markets and associated profound transformation of landscapes, of ecosystems, is not something that is characteristic for the last 200 years or 500 years since Columbus, for instance, but it's something that actually emerges when you have enough connections between human communities. So this would be the first discovery that I would mention. 
the period that you're mentioning there with this this interconnectivity, would this be before or after the Bronze Age collapse? After the Bronze Age collapse. And there is actually good research, not by our group, but by other groups, that shows that these kind of processes, they were also to an extent active in the Middle East, in the Bronze Age. Would you say a few words about the Bronze Age collapse? I just pulled it out of nowhere and didn't explain what it is to the audience. Yeah, so the Bronze Age collapse is the decline, in some cases abrupt, in some cases gradual, of the civilizations that developed in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean, so let's say from Greece to Iraq, from Turkey to Egypt. And this happened some 1,500 years before Christ, to put it very, very simple. So there was a complex web of uh, commerce and um, contact between civilizations that in some cases rapidly, in other cases uh, more gradually, went away. Yes. And things got much simpler. Yes. Yeah. And there's, uh, as far as I know, uh, unresolved speculation as to what caused it. Yes. It's probably had several causes. It's something evolutionary in our brains that we are always looking for a single cause. But in Mm -hmm. fact, this is what I also referred to at the beginning when I was saying that we have the reality is, you know, contradictory in a way. It's complex. It's multi-causal, basically. Yes, you don't have a single cause, especially for very big changes. Well, for those looking for a single cause for the Bronze Age collapse, uh, I think the romantic thing that people get attracted to is the idea of the sea people. This uh, marauding group that went just and, and pillaged everybody and, and you know broke down uh, networks of trade. Yes, another idea is that there was abrupt and very significant climate change. There was in some places, and in some places it had important effects and others not. So it's you know several factors really working at the same time. So I think one of the things that you're interested in, and I, I got this from listening to your appearance on the Infectious History podcast. You're interested in communicating to the general public about your work. That's true. So the topic of communicating scientific work and discovery to a non-specialist public is, you know, there's some controversy there, and uh, there's certainly a lot of difficulty. What do you have in mind, basically, when you're trying to convey what you and your colleagues have come to to a population that really doesn't share your vocabulary or understand your methodology? What, what is it you're hoping to get across? I think that there are two levels of outreach in that case. One is, if there is some interest in something specific that we do, we can go into detail. We only need to tell it in simple words. So to get rid of the jargon. And it's a very good exercise also for our everyday work when we want to communicate with other scientific disciplines, because there is no single scientific jargon. Every discipline, every community of scientists working on something has their own jargon that is not understood by another community of scientists. And they may be using the same words that mean different things to different communities. So this would be one level. And we go, let's say, you know, we explain this study just as I tried to explain in a few sentences, the ancient Greek markets integration study. But there is a more general level. And I would say it's taking different examples, not necessarily from our work, to help people think about the complexity, about the multi-causal nature of the reality, social and environmental reality. So that there is never a single factor that we are part of a big, let's say, web of nature and society in which things happen. 
So one of the things that you're studying uh, is the impact of infectious disease on you know past civilizations, uh, specifically I think the the Roman Empire. And I read a book, you know, a popular history and science book uh, a few years ago. Actually, I think maybe just a couple of years ago. It's called The Fate of Rome. And I think I've got the full title at the ready here. The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire by Kyle Harper. And I listened to several interviews with the author in addition to reading the book. And I wanted to have the book at the ready so I could look at my highlights. But I have moved since then and it's packed away. So I, I can't find it. But I've heard you make specific mention of this book, The Fate of Rome, and uh, I wonder what your response to it was. Yes, so I would say it's, on the one hand, it's a very good popular book. On the other hand, there were big issues in the academic community about this book, probably because of how it framed things in order to be able to communicate with the popular audience. So I would say the main issue is actually the tendency of the author in this book to go single causal. So to have one cause for one big process that he's describing, you know, economic flourishing, Roman climate optimum, the collapse, the final collapse, the plague of Justinian, and so on. And this drive to make things simple and bring forward a single cause made him simplify several aspects of science both historical and uh, natural, that he uses in this book. Mm -hmm. So I'm not blaming him. It's a great success, this book. And it drew attention to our field. So you read it <laughs> and you know, you know the kind of stuff I work on. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, you know, scientists always argue about books. Well, particularly books that are meant for the general public or a general audience. Most people are not scientists. They don't have the patience for a lot of data that is presented outside the context of a narrative. Yes. You know, they need something to, to put it all together. And you talk about um, monocausal explanations, but even in the title of Harper's book, which I no longer have on screen, here it is, uh, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire, he's talking about climate change and infectious disease as possible contributors to the decline of the Roman Empire. So, you know, right there in the title, there's at least two causes that he's looking at. That's true. But what about religion? You know, what about the rise of Islam and uh, the way this contributed to the fall of the Persian Empire and the shrinking of the Eastern Roman Empire? This would be the first question that comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. Another question is, what about the migrations in Eurasia on the Eurasian steppe, the Huns and everything that was going on for good three, four hundred years? and contributed to the fall of the Western Empire and so on. What about, you know, political economic dynamics that was different in the East and the West? You know, several things going on, the rise of Christianity, several things that were going on at the same time. And also, I think that the main problem that many of us in environmental history of antiquity have is actually not that he brings up climate and disease, but that he simplifies the narrative about climate and disease too much in our, you know, in our understanding. Well, to the best of your recollection, would you summarize his presentation on climate and disease and then say what you think is missing? Yes. So let me try to summarize. I think the way Kyle, I know him, so I will call him by name. Okay. So Kyle <laughs> presented that in, in his book is that th there were some big periods of climate history. There was Roman climate optimum, there was transitional period, and then there was the late and take Little Ice Age. And he built that like 
big historical epochs, medieval times, early modern times, antiquity, middle ages. And he attributed characteristics of climate to these periods. And he assumed that it was more or less the same across the Mediterranean. The problem is that the changes that he's describing were taking place, but they were more regional. They were different across the Mediterranean. And you cannot really come with historical periods, you know, like big epochs, like 200 years of that. And then we transition to 200 years of something different when you talk about climate, because climate is highly variable, both in time and in space. So it could have been optimal in some parts of the Roman Empire, but not in other parts. And this is, I think, part of the problem, that it could have been more nuanced. On the other hand, this way of presenting this made it, you know, digestible, understandable to the public. And it's a great merit. So the question is, how much can you simplify a story without falsifying it? Yes. And do, do you think he stayed on the right side of the, the falsification line? I would say yes, in the end. I mean, uh, <laughs> thinking of the success of the book, you mm -hmm. know, it drew attention to these factors, to the environmental dimension of the fall of Rome and to the field of interdisciplinary history, you know, all this interdisciplinary study of the past. So I think it was successful and it means he did it correct. Nobody expects that this book will present all the complexity and all the difficulties. Perhaps there could be, you know, he could have done a little bit more, but it's still very good. And the same argument as I made about climate could be made about the pandemics that he describes, just for the record. On the topic of plague, particularly bubonic plague, I think the popular imagination, you know, in the West calls to mind images of uh, medieval Europe. But bubonic plague was a reality for the Romans as well. And in fact, the uh, the plague of Justinian, which has a different name, which I have trouble pronouncing, Justinianic plague, I think it is. Yes. It yes. plays a big part in Kyle Harper's book. Would you talk a little bit about the role of infectious disease and specifically bubonic plague in the Roman Empire? Yes, I think Kyle makes very interesting argument about pandemics in the Roman Empire. So he says that the integration of the different parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa, so some kind of Roman globalization. Again, I'm using the word globalization, even though we are not talking about the entire planet, but it's this kind of process of globalizing, bringing very different parts of the world together. So this Roman globalization created some kind of conveyor belt for the viruses and bacteria, for pathogens, basically. And he says, this is what created pandemics in the Roman world. So there was Antonine plague, there was Cyprianic plague. They were second, third century. We don't really know what they were. There is a lot of speculation. For the plague of Justinian in the sixth century, at the very end of antiquity, we have the smoking gun because ancient DNA specialists, so people who take teeth and bones of individuals, of humans who died in this period, they can recover DNA of not only these humans, but also of the pathogens that were in very high concentrations when they died. So if you died of plague, you have a lot of plague bacterium, Yersinia pestis, in your blood. It's circulating in your teeth, which is sealed, and it can survive the fragments of this DNA for even thousands of years. And this is the smoking gun, but we know that the plague of Justinian was actually plague. So you've brought up a, a whole new scientific realm of inquiry that we haven't even talked about. That's true. And I'm not even sure what it's called. What is it, like molecular paleontology? Ancient DNA. 
edge okay. DNA studies. You can also say archaeogenetics, but it's more difficult to pronounce. So I think ancient DNA studies is, you know, it's just enough. Uh, if you want to sound smart at a party, though, archaeogenetics that sounds <laughs> That's <true. laughs> pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but right now we're talking about Rome and the effects of pandemic and infectious disease, and in particular, the plague of Justinian. So if you would continue on that topic. Yes. So what I would like to say, I think part of the problem with plague in general is that for generations, historians have been taking the Black Death as the model. So this is the most famous, not really outbreak, like, you know, pandemic of plague in European history. And we assume that every other pandemic of plague was the same. So we take the Justinianic plague, about which we know, let's say, 5% or perhaps even 1% of what we know about the Black Death in terms of the volume of historical data of the text that we have from this period or archaeological material. And we assume, okay, this was the same pathogen. It must have been the same. It killed half of the population. But we actually know that plague was with us already in the Bronze Age. So for the first time, plague is confirmed in Europe in some 4,000 years ago, and we know it thanks to ancient DNA. So it's been moving across the steppe into Europe from Central Asia for more than 2,000 years by the time the plague of Justinian happened, and more than three and a half thousand years by the time the Black Death happened. So perhaps we shouldn't take just one pandemic outbreak that we know, wave that we know so well, and take it as a model for everything. And then we start having problems with the plague of Justinian. Okay, we know there was a big outbreak in Constantinople and lots of people were dying, but the numbers, you know, they are just literature, belles You don't really, you can't really trust them. You know a lot of people were dying, but you cannot really say the numbers. You know it was present here and there, but you cannot really quantify and say, okay, half of the Roman, of the population of the empire died. And I think this is where I am also at odds with Kyle, that he goes in this, he takes this path of thinking of the plague of Justinian as if it had been the Black Death. And, you know, we don't really know if it was. Perhaps the Black Death was something special. And actually, there is more and more research to show that, okay, the Black Death was incredible killer in some parts of Europe, but it wasn't in other parts of Europe. So even that was more complicated. Why is it that a pathogen that had been with us for a couple of thousand years would suddenly become uh, a pandemic? It's really the question of the circumstances. And this is where we come, you know, to talking about many causes. Yes, we have the pathogen, which is, let's say, the original cause of the pandemic. But this pathogen is not really a human pathogen. It's a pathogen of wild rodents that live somewhere in Central Asia. And this bacterium needs to get a ride to Europe to really become deadly, you know, like problem mm -hmm. for Europe. And even if it establishes itself in some forest in central Germany, for instance, it doesn't stay there for long, a few decades or so. So you need to have these connections. You need to have trade routes that are very active, that are bringing the kind of goods which would be good and that use the kind of animals that would be good for the transport of the bacterium and fleas or, or lice or whatever, yes? So... Humans need to create conditions for this bacterium to become an agent, the cause of a pandemic. So it's actually humans who create the pandemic out of some local outbreak where it spills over from, you know, some 
very sweet marmots and squirrels living in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan into local villages. If these villages uh, happen to be, you know, on the path of the of some trade routes and there is a lot of movement or there is an army moving through it, this could become a problem. So it, I would think that for hundreds of years, the plague would primarily be moving long distances uh, on horses, you know, people moving from one place to another on horseback. And that maybe when shipping and, you know, over water transportation became more prevalent, that that would be a boon to the plague, that it would spread much more rapidly that way. Yes, I think that there is no evidence that there are some exoparasites, so, you know, these kind of insects that live on the horses, that they can transmit a plague bacterium. So I think, you know, the horses create the speed of the movement, perhaps, but it's somewhere else. There are even a possibility that it could survive. Lice with, with the bacterium could survive for some time in clothing that could be carried by a caravan or something like that, you know, and then sold mm -hmm. somewhere and you suddenly get a problem in your house. Well, I can tell from personal experience that uh, fleas are very hard to get rid of and their eggs can, they're viable for a very long time and they can sit just waiting for the right thing to come by and jump on. And... But the problem is that eggs doesn't do the job mm -hmm. because the plague, the bacterium needs to constantly circulate between the host of the flea, you know, ah. who has the blood. And, you know, like it needs to go in a constant circle between the flea, the host, and so on. So eggs don't do the job. You need a like living population of fleas or lice to do the job. Ah. So it's really, this is why it doesn't happen so often in history. And it happens when you suddenly have a lot of movement in the steps that, you know, one of these movements, finally, you know, some caravan, some warrior group gets it. So in a way, you could probably think of it as so implausible, so improbable to happen, actually, this long distance movement, that you need to have, you need to give a lot of chance to the bacterium mm -hmm. and these insects. So when you have a lot of movement from Central Asia to China or to Europe, you give it a chance. But you really need a lot. All right. How are you enjoying the conversation so far? If anything that you've heard has piqued your interest, I would suggest that you check out the show notes for this episode. You can find them at en.padverb.com. There you will find links to articles and resources related to the things that Professor Izdebski and I have been talking about thus far. Now, from this point on, we're going to change gears pretty considerably. And we're going to talk a lot about geology and chronostratigraphy which is a word that I don't say as easily as it sounds like I just did. That's basically the science of looking at rock strata. Looking at rock strata and using that information to figure out things that happened in the past. You know, there are historical timescales and then there are geological timescales. And historical timescales means, you know, things that humans were around to experience and make notes on. And, you know, it's, it's our collective history as a species or as a civilization, at least or a series of civilizations that we can map into a lineage. But all of history, human history, is a minute sliver of geological time. Now, in the coming conversation, I'm going to make many references to layers in rock, which correspond to different periods in time. And when I say period, I'm not using that word in the geologically specific sense. I just mean an amount of time. We are currently living in the Holocene epoch, 
of the Quaternary Period of the Cenozoic Era. I'm going to be throwing out a bunch of big words like that as if I had them committed to memory. I don't. I'm actually, in the conversation you're about to hear, I'm going to be, I'm going to be looking at a chart that, that shows the different la layers in the rock and the different uh, names that, that geologists have attached to those rock layers. And it's not strictly necessary, but it might be helpful for you to look at a similar chart. The one I'm looking at is very easy on the eyes. There is a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But if you just do a search for geological period chart, you'll find something that you can make reference to. Now, we're going to be talking about an argument that I first encountered from John Michael Greer, uh, formerly the Archdruid and author of the Archdruid Report. Now he has a blog that he calls Ecosophia. But in 2016, he published a blog post called The Myth of the Anthropocene. And it circulated widely, even outside his blog. In fact, I'm looking at an archived version of it on resilience.org. Again, there'll be a link in the show notes. So I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs here from this, from the beginning. John Michael Greer writes, Over the last few years, a certain number of scientists, climate activists, and talking heads in the media have been claiming that the Earth has passed out of its previous geological epoch, the Holocene, and into a new epoch, the Anthropocene. Their argument is straightforward. Human beings have become a major force shaping geology, and that unprecedented reality requires a new moniker. Last I heard, the scholarly body that authorizes formal changes to that end of scientific terminology hasn't yet approved the new term for official use, but it's seeing increasing use in less formal settings. I'd like to suggest that the proposed change is a mistake, and that the label Anthropocene should go into whatever circular file holds phlogiston, the luminiferous ether, and other scientific terms that didn't turn out to represent realities. That's not because I doubt that human beings are having a major impact on geology just now, far from it. My reasons are somewhat complex and will require a glance back over part of the history of geology, specifically the evolution of the labels we use to talk about portions of the past. It's going to be a bit of a long journey, but bear with me. It matters. Now I'm going to stop reading there because his explanation, as he gave fair warning, is long and intricate. I try to summarize it conversationally in the conversation with Professor Izdemski that you're about to hear. I don't think I did a very good job of it, though. So what I'm going to do now is read just a little bit to you from a piece that ran in The Atlantic in 2019, three years after John Michael Greer's widely read and widely circulated blog post. This piece is called The Anthropocene is a Joke. On geological timescales, human civilization is an event, not an epoch by Peter Brannan. So I'm going to skip most of his introduction because he's basically, you know, he's, he's trotting the same path that you just heard me trod with John Michael Greer. He admits, as John Michael Greer did, that human industrial activity is having enormous impacts on the planet, but that over geological timescales, we're talking the geological timescales in which the Indian subcontinent drifting into the Asian continent causes the land to crinkle and drives up the Himalayas, over hundreds of millions of years, the Himalayas will then be ground down back to nothing again. These are events that take place in geological timescales. Human activity does not occupy those timescales. Peter Brennan writes, Perhaps, someday, our signal in the rocks will be found, but only if eagle-eyed stratigraphers from God knows where on the Tree of Life crisscross their own rearranged earth, assiduously trying to find us. But they would be unlikely to be rewarded for their effort. At the end of all their travels, after cataloging all the bedrock of the entire planet, 
they might finally be led to an odd, razor-thin stratum hiding halfway up some eroded, far-flung desert canyon. If they then somehow found an accompanying plaque, left behind by humanity, that purports to assign this unusual lair its own epoch, sandwiched in these cliffs, and embarrassed above and below by gigantic edifices of limestone, siltstone, and shale, this claim would amount to evidence of little more than our own species' astounding anthropocentrism. Unless we fast learn how to endure on this planet on a scale far beyond anything we've yet proved ourselves capable of, the detritus of civilization will be quickly devoured by the maw of deep time. So, I think that's more than enough introduction. I will just say, though, that in the past, I have described the term Anthropocene as pseudoscience, because it is a word mostly used by non-scientists. I mostly hear critical theorists and other cultural critics invoke the notion of the Anthropocene. It ends in scene, which makes it sound like a word from geology, but it's not a word from geology. And it might be unfair to call it pseudoscience because it was proposed by scientists, but not geologists. It was proposed by a chemist and a climate scientist. So for now, I'll back away from that provocative label, pseudoscience, and let's continue with the conversation with Professor Adam Izdebsky. You know, much earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that people use words with different meanings, and even scientists, you know, in different fields have different meanings for different words. And you were, when you were talking about the history of Rome, and Kyle Harper's presentation of it, you, you mentioned uh, historical epochs. But in terms of epochs, you know, from a geological perspective, all of that took place within the Holocene epoch. That's true. And just in a small part of the Holocene epoch. Right. So now I, I want to share my screen and I want to bring up that, uh, that chart that I mentioned. Here, this is the one. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with this image. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen this particular image, but it's oh, a nice haven't. one. Oh, you haven't? Oh, yeah. It's no. Very no. easy on the eyes. Mm -hmm. Yes. For, for people who are just hearing, we're, we're going to change topics. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, John Michael Greer and his criticism of the use of the term Anthropocene. And I don't have all of these terms committed to memory, so I will need a visual reference. And I'm just picking the one that is easiest on the eyes. And uh, being a cartoonist, I'm going for the one with the, the cartoony imagery. It's got a pterosaur flying off this column on the, the left-hand side of the image. And there's a pickup truck with, um, oh, what is that creature called? I have no idea. <laughs> Even though I've been hanging out with geologists for a long time now. It looks like a nautilus. You know, it's got the spiral yeah. shell and like a, an octopus sticking out of a shell. But I don't know what this ancient version is called. Anyway. Our history, our geology, you know, as revealed to us in geology by the, the strata uh, laid down over millions and billions of years in, in the rock, is divided up, and the, the classifications have changed over time. But right now, we have, uh, I believe, we're in the Cenozoic Age. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And that age is broken up into a great many epochs. And epochs, you know, they are usually millions of years in length, but we are at the beginning of what's known as the Holocene epoch, and we're just about 10,000 years into it. Oh, we are at the very end. Oh, we already, you know, left this epoch. Well, there has been a proposal, not made by geologists, but made by, I believe, climate scientist and uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist to introduce or to change yes. the name of our current epoch to the Anthropocene. 
to basically to highlight the effects that human industrial activity is having on all manner of of systems on the earth you know the hydrological cycle the carbon cycle introducing you know microplastics and uh, radioactive elements from nuclear testing all, all manner of things are being laid down in sediment in the rock and you know evidence of our activities will be available to skilled geologists should they exist you know 100 million years from now yes i think perhaps some clarification that the idea of the anthropocene is that humanity and there is a question of what you mean by humanity but let's put it like that humanity became a geological force so we are able to change our planet on a global scale and if we and now we transition to the point about geology okay if you want to have a new epoch you need to have a signal in the strata in the rock in the ground not on the ground but in the ground of this new epoch and this is when we started to looking okay microplastic okay the signal of the you know the nuclear fallout from chernobyl and the nuclear testing so looking for something that will stay for millions of years in the ground in the earth as as it accumulates and could signal a new geological epoch. Technically, it's called a marker. So I think this is how the idea went, that we wanted to recognize the power of humanity, the planetary power of humanity. And then when geologists said, okay, let's try, we started looking for all these geological markers. And there's, there's some difficulty in picking one. I mean, if you want to ascribe humanity as the cause of, of this new geological epoch, uh, humanity's been around for at least a couple hundred thousand years, but it's probably our technology that is more interesting. But what technology? Steam engines? Fire? Yes. So I think I think the problem is really how you approach that. If you approach that from the point of view of humanity's power, then perhaps you really think about everything that happened after the Second World War. You know, the use of dynamite, the use of a combustion engine and so on, as you mentioned. And this became really universal, contrary to, to earlier technologies that were widespread, but not that widespread and powerful in the 19th century. But if you look at that from the geological point of view, you become, you become very narrow in your thinking because you're really thinking just, okay, what is deposited in the earth, you know, like in the ground, on the ground, and then becomes part of the ground, you know, underneath? that will survive for thousands of years. The changes in the atmosphere, yes, perhaps we have the spike in CO2, for instance, and it will stay for some time. But perhaps the nuclear fallout, the microplastic is better. But then if you want to have a geological epoch, it should be universal. You should be able to find it across the globe on the different continents. So it becomes kind of a scientific challenge to find the sign of the Anthropocene in the ground that is really global. So I think, you know, there is a lot of controversy. And I even wanted to mention the controversy about the name. Anthropocene, humanity. Who is humanity, you know? It's not African people or even Asian people or South American people who brought us into the Anthropocene. It's mostly white people from the Northern Hemisphere. It's mostly people speaking English, if you think about the last 200 years, and mostly men. So, and it's mostly about capitalism. So you can say capitalocene for instance, or you can say technocene. There are several, let's say, word games that are trying to contextualize that. And there is another problem. 
what about the fact that many of the, if you look at the social science part of that, many of the processes were already emerging thousands of years ago. So what do you do about that? Well, I've mentioned John Michael Greer, and I think his criticism of the use of the word Anthropocene is a bit different in that like, we're in the Cenozoic Age, and there were six epochs in this age before ours. Uh, I might get the pronunciation wrong, but it looks like they were the Paleocene, Eocene, Oligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, and then the Holocene. And the C-E-N-E that's at the end of each of those basically just means recent. Yes. And all of these are referencing uh, how similar the things that were alive at that time were to the things that are alive now. Mm -hmm. And if you want to introduce Anthropocene, you're basically breaking the naming convention of the last you know, several million years. That's true. Like the 65 million years. So that, that's one criticism. Another is that you know one of these epochs that ends in scene uh they've lasted 60 let's see these six were 65 million years you know together i mean the shortest was 1.8 million years it looks like and uh, we're just 10,000 yes. years into the holocene so an epoch ending in scene is going to be something that goes on for millions of years but if you think that human industrial activity uh particularly you know under the auspices of capitalism or you know, it's it's rival communism because they did the exact same things in terms of industrialization. Mm -hmm. You know, the sorts of people who like to talk about the Anthropocene are also very fond of the notion that, you know, our current society is unsustainable and certainly will not be lasting for millions of years. And, you know, 65 million years ago, a big comet crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula and brought the Mesozoic Age to a conclusion. And we didn't name the next age or even the next epoch after the comet. The comet you know, it threw up a lot of debris. It is the impact of the comet is clear in the geological record, but it did cause the end of one age and the beginning of the next, but we didn't name the next age after that thing, the cause. So John Michael Greer's point is that if human industrial civilization is going to be short-lived, it's not going to be the primary influence of laying down the next several million years of rock strata. It's going to be just a thin barrier layer. And it, you know, that's not an epoch. Epics are longer periods of time. I wonder what your, your response to that argument is. Yes, I would say that even Holocene is, you know, it could be seen as another interglacial. So we have a sequence of glacial and interglacial periods during the last 100,000 years. And humanity existed through several of them. I mean, it depends on what you see as humanity. If Homo sapiens just our species that happened to survive, but there were several other human species until relatively recently, mm -hmm. like a few dozen thousand years ago. So even us as a species, we went through several glacial and interglacial periods, and we are just in an interglacial period that, during which the civilization happened to develop. There is some cumulative effect of what was happening during earlier glacial and interglacial periods, etc., but it's just something that happened very rapidly and is having huge impact. So it's, you know, kind of making it easier for us to single out the current interglacial as an epoch. And when you look at that from the geological or evolutionary perspective, because they actually overlap in a way, we are talking about different, let's say, regimes of life on Earth in terms of biodiversity and dominant species and ecosystems and so on. 
it's true that you know we are perhaps at the end of something or from the point of view you know of politics what we would probably want to have is we would somehow try to keep the holocene going on for thousands of years i mean i don't know if any politician or any you know strategic thinker thinks in terms of thousands of years but at least decades <laughs> at least hundreds of years this is this kind of very good conditions for civilization we developed we just want to carry on I've just noticed that uh, Parker has been active in the chat here, mm -hmm. and he's quoting Wikipedia. Uh, in January 2015, members of the International Anthropocene Working Group published a paper suggesting the Trinity test of the nuclear first nuclear bomb test on 16 July 1945 as the starting point of the proposed new epoch. And then he writes, uh, the ages were named before the Chicxulub crater impact was known about. And I, I don't know what he's, you know, what the implication that should follow that last statement is it means that they were not designing the names inventing the names knowing that there was a comet mm -hmm. had they known perhaps they would have called it differently <laughs> they would have oh i see yeah the... so the argument you know that it was not called comezoic cometozoic or whatever right is a good thought experiment but it's not you know a valid argument in a way mm -hmm. and i must say i like the 1945 1950 starting age for the anthropocene because it brings together the geological thinking okay we have the nuclear fallout and the moment when suddenly the impact of humanity you know the curve goes just up like that in terms of the impact of humans on the planet and the consumption of the different types of resources and the distortion of different life and uh, geological cycles Departing from, from John Michael Greer's criticisms, I personally don't care for the name Anthropocene just because in environmental circles and um, other sort of subcultures that I've been invested in online over the past decade and a half, I've encountered a lot of people who are just very negative about humanity in general. <laughs> you know, I, what's, what's the word that means hatred of humanity? Anyway. And it's it's not something that I subscribe to, and it's just not something that I would want to see introduced into scientific nomenclature, particularly when you're talking about rock strata, which are laid down over billions of years. You know, to introduce a, a social and a political messaging into that taxonomy, I just don't think is helpful. And what's more, you know, the the current the current epoch doesn't really exist in the rock strata yet. I mean, it's what's going to be laid down over the next several million years. And it, it just seems ridiculous that we can assert that, you know, if there are any geologists 10 million years from now, that they have to use this particular nomenclature, which references, you know, social tensions and uh, cultural, you know, cultural fights that have been going on in the early 21st century. It just, it doesn't seem like yes. the right place for it. You know, I will now be the way the reality is. So self-contradictory. I both agree and disagree with what you said. Mm -hmm. Because I like, and many social scientists like the fact that there is this consilience, let's call it like that, yes, this uh, conflation of geological and social perspective. So there is this very strong message that comes from the science of geology, humanity became a planetary force. Like this is new kind of responsibility, this is new level of impact and so on. That's true. On the other hand, I disagree with that because it suggests that we have a problem only for the last 50 years. And it suggests that 
it's something completely new while it is not the thing is the scale the scale is new and the technology that enables the scale but much of my own research and research of many archaeologists and historians actually show that the processes that are leading to the Anthropocene, that created the Anthropocene, or this moment of crisis, of planetary crisis, which I, I, I think the planetary crisis is probably the best term for describing uh, the 21st century. These processes were actually going, you know, we can observe them on a smaller scale, you know, in ancient Greece, in the Bronze Age, at different, in different places and different points in time. And this actually shows us that we have to invent ourselves again anew if we want to survive and keep the Holocene kind of thing or <laughs> modified Holocene going on. It's not impossible because you can also look at different ways of life in the past that were not Anthropocene-ish, proto-Anthropocene and this kind of stuff. But I think that there is a lot of investigation to do to understand what were the Anthropocene-like processes and what triggered them, why they worked in some places and not in others, and how can we, you know, reinvent ourselves, really. It's not about one techno fix or another, yes? Switching from fossil fuel cars to electric cars powered by wind or nuclear energy. This will help and is very important, but it's about something more. By the way, Slava, our producer, he provided the word that I wasn't coming up with, which is misanthropy. Yes, I was thinking of misogynic, yes. but it's a different thing. It's only about yes. uh, women. Yeah. Misanthropy, yes. Misanthropy or a misanthrope. Somebody, you know, there was a play by, what was it, Moliere, uh, the misanthrope? Anyway, somebody who hates humanity. And that was an aside. The proto-anthropocenic processes that you just referenced, uh, what are some examples of those? What are, I w wasn't quite following your last point about how what we're calling the Anthropocene or what some people would like to have us call the Anthropocene really started before the human influence entered the scene. So Anthropocene is about a human community, and now it's a planetary community, but you can also scale down to some regional or local community, carrying out profound transformation and irreversible and damaging in some way transformation of the natural environment. So this is how I would define that. It's profound, irreversible, and potentially damaging. And moments of such change, examples of such change, before 1945 are plenty. So one example would be when the Roman Empire finally united in the times of Augustus, so or times of Jesus, the entire Mediterranean, a huge market for agricultural produce was created. And we see we have actually ongoing research project in Turkey, in the Aegean part, region of Turkey, where we have a lake, which we study to reconstruct changes of the landscape around this lake, and what we see, a generation, roughly a generation after this unification, globalization of the Mediterranean and this emergence of new global market, is complete wiping out of the previous landscape and created monocropping olive groves. In some place that is, you know, 1,000 meters high, is you really need to want to make profits to go there, get rid of everything, create olive grove, and then transport everything up and down. This is a big investment, and it was maintained for 400 years, actually. This is what I would call proto-anthropocene. This kind of creation of emergence of opportunities for markets, for integration, and just, you know, you can call it greed, you can call it culture, 
that drives very, very deep transformation of the natural ecosystems in which you lose something, you know, and you cannot come back. Because when the Rome kind of falls, yes, the, the Roman economy disappears, disintegrates at the end of antiquity. Kyle Harper's book comes up again. There is no reverse to the natural forest, natural environment. There is some kind of secondary pine woodlands, a new environment, more simplified, less biodiverse, and so on. You know, we're coming to the end of our time, and I think you've already started to do this, but I would encourage you to look back on our conversation and uh, draw from anything that we've touched on instances of things that are relevant to our species and our civilization going forward. You know, what are some of the things that we need to do and what um, the sorts of research that you do, particularly, you know, the interdisciplinary research where you are managing a team of people looking with different tools, you know, at a single subject, what is that yielding which is actionable? You know, what can we do with this information to basically coordinate our efforts as a species and as a civilization to get through what seems to be a pretty tumultuous time with, you know, an uncertain future for the human species? Perhaps two or three points. The first point is that it's very useful for educating people and helping them understand and imagine what is going on and what is going, you know, what will be going on. So something like Kyle's book, Harper's book, which helped you, you know, think about that was possible because of the research that groups like ours are doing. So I think this is the first use. It's very useful. We tell stories that can help, you know, put these different elements, these different forces together. The second thing is you can go in very specific places, understand the social, natural, like human and natural history of this place. And you can think, okay, what is our target? We want to make it more biodiverse. What is viable? What is actually the point in the past that we want to refer to? Or actually, what is the kind of something new that we want to create in this place? Taking it into account climate change, but also the, you know, the path that this place followed for hundreds and thousands of years. And the third is that history is like past, I would say. It's like a lab from which you can take a lot of case studies and you can come to some general conclusions. And for instance, looking at plague helps you understand how pandemics happen. And you can come to some general models that can guide your understanding and your research on the present and your preparedness for the present. So these would be, you know, the three points. Education, very local application in terms of restoration activities. And thirdly, the general model that can guide our thinking about the present and adapting, responding to the present. How would you feel about uh, adding a new team member or a new discipline to your multidisciplinary group that is focused exclusively on making scientific research discoveries palatable to non-scientists? This is exactly what we are trying to do right now. We actually have a very good media department in our institute, and I'm working a lot with them. And what we are doing right now, we will be soon advertising together with Princeton University a postdoc position. Hopefully, it's like not formalized yet, but it's a plan to actually have somebody working more on policy relevant than public outreach, but really looking at how what we do, our group and many other groups in environmental history can be translated into something useful and relevant, directly relevant for policymaking in this case, but I am sure that it will also have impact on public outreach. If we still have a moment, I was 
actually thinking about the misanthropy aspect. I don't know if I can mm-hmm. try to make a comment about that. Please do. I think the problem is that we are behaving like every species in the sense that every species tries to transform the environment into which it comes in a way that is better for itself. And every, every species does it. It's called niche construction. This niche is the kind of environment in which you can thrive. And this is what we do. We come somewhere and we want to create very quickly an environment in which we can thrive. So in this way, you know, if you are misanthropic because of that, you are misanthropic of life itself, of the evolution. And perhaps we should try to think what makes our behavior into a problem. I think the problem is that the evolution has been going for so long that we are too powerful. Or perhaps that, you know, we became powerful before we realized that. And perhaps this is the moment to grasp our power in a better way, you know, to still continue creating niches because there is probably no other way for us to survive than to try to maintain the entire planet as a human niche, but we can do it in a better way, more mindful of other creatures that live in the human niche that live with us and also more long-term thinking and perhaps science and dialogue between the public and science and politics is something that we need for that to succeed. I'm, you know, I have children. I'm looking for some optimism. (laughs) I also have children. I not only am looking for an optimistic uh, ray of hope because I have children, but also because I've spent many years in a very sort of nihilistic mode, emphasizing, you know, what's not workable and probably overestimating the likelihood of a catastrophic failure of, of, you know, global industrial civilization in the near future. So uh, I'm, I think some of my audience would say I'm overcorrecting and, and going too far, you know, to the other extreme. <laughs> but right now I am, I am more interested in optimistic stories and viewpoints. Well, to close out, I'd like to direct you to something I just posted into the chat. It's a quote by Mulan Kundera. Uh-huh. I like him. And he wrote, people are always shouting that they want to create a better future. It's not true. The future is an apathetic void of no interest to anyone. The past is full of life, eager to irritate us, provoke us, insult us, tempt us to destroy or repaint it. The only reason people want to be masters of the future is to change the past. I like it. It shows how, you know, the past history, geology, paleoecology, and so on, how it matters. And I think it's also very real. You know, we want to change the past. We want to change what now seems unavoidable consequence of the past. You know, it's said that uh, history is written by the winners. And, you know, there is a dedicated movement, a very energetic movement right now to rewrite history, or at least to reframe history, to, you know, de-emphasize the role of the great man in history, to emphasize the, the crimes and the injustice of the colonial period. So, yeah, it seems that when a new a group of people who had been marginalized gets some power, one of their first projects is to change the past. Definitely. Or at least to change our understanding of the past. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I I think we have just about used up our time, but I would like to extend the last word to you. Is there a project that you would like to make people aware of, or is there some place online that you would like them to go to find out more about what you're doing? So... There are several sites on the internet where you can find more information about environmental history. There is the Global American and European Societies of Environmental History. They have good websites. 
there is very interesting online project of the European Society, which is Arcadia. So Arcadia.org, where you can find relatively simple, well-written stories from the past of mostly Europe that show the environmental aspects. And perhaps this could lead you to some popular books. I think that we should create a good gateway to environmental and interdisciplinary history. We haven't done that yet. But there are more and more popular books like Kyle Harper's book that are trying to do that. Well, Adam Izdebski, I have very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you. All right. That's my conversation with Professor Adam Izdebski. If that conversation really captured your imagination and you would like to explore further along those lines, as I've mentioned, there are many links to follow from the show notes on this episode, which you can find on en.padverb.com. If you were a bit bewildered and you found your mind wandering during this conversation, you might consider listening to it again. I, uh, I recorded the conversation, you know, so I was present and a participant for it. And then one of our producers edited the podcast and sent me the edited version, and I listened to it a couple weeks later. And while I, as I listened to the conversation, I remembered saying the things that I said, uh, I didn't necessarily remember or at least understanding and committing to long-term memory everything that Professor Izdebski said. So in a way, it was like listening to this conversation for the first time, and I got a lot out of re-listening to it. And again, I was a live participant to it as it happened. Now, I realize that the world throws a lot of information at you, and if you listen to a lot of podcasts, the uh, the queue of podcasts to listen to next is probably long. And yeah, definitely go on to whatever's next in the queue. But you might make a note to come back and listen to this one after a little bit of time has passed. I, I really do believe that you will get more out of it on the second listen. All right, I mentioned that uh, one of our producers did the editing. And as always, I'd like to thank the Padverb team, which includes executive producer Anna Haskell, producer Slava Borisov, who also composed the theme music, producer Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sophia Saw. Thanks to the entire team, and thank you, the listener. I'll be back in one week with another episode. Talk to you then.